So congratulations, 48 hours. You did it. <laughs> and if you can get to 48, the rest is a breeze. So last night, Deborah gave us a very beautiful talk with a clear, simple message. Let go, let go, let go. Tonight, you're going to hear a different kind of talk. It's going to involve lists and suttas and various exercises that you're going to do and lots of details about how to practice. And so how are you to receive this kind of talk? Let go, let go, <laughs> let go. It takes a deliberateness to let go when there's a lot of information being given. But the purpose of the information is to point you to the gestalt of the whole picture, not that you're supposed to retain all the details. You'll hear these details over and over and over again to the point that you could give many of these same lists talks yourself. <laughs> it's part of the process. We repeat and get deeper. We understand something new each time. One way that you let go is that you trust your body to hear. You trust your body to reverberate with what's most important to you, and that's what sinks in deepest. And how is it that you would trust your body? You stay present in the body. So as you're listening to me, you're listening to me sometimes with my voice in the foreground, and other times my voice may be in the background as your own body sensations are in the foreground. It'll all come together. So the whole body is listening, not the old coconut alone. So here we are at this point in the retreat. You've had plenty of experiences of the challenges of this retreat, of any retreat. You've known the sleepiness, the fatigue, the uncertainty, the questioning. And so it's appropriate to remind ourselves of why it is we are doing this. Why are we doing this? And as Deborah was pointing out last night and referring to the Four Noble Truths, we're doing it because in this realm, we are only presented with the option of how we relate to the way this realm is. We don't get to pick and choose how life's going to be. Life is set up in a certain way in this realm. Ajahn Sumedho uh, one time in a retreat said, you know, being born is a death sentence. <laughs> and it's true. But when you think about that, you think about your ego as you're developing ego from a little baby on through, and your ego, which at a pretty early age starts to get that, oh, people die. Imagine what a struggle that is for your ego. How does it, since it, it, your ego thinks it's supposed to be managing everything, how does your ego manage its sure defeat? How does it manage that? And so uh, the ego creates a lot of compensatory uh, uh, activities from denial to uh, distraction to um, uh, uh, magical thinking, all sorts of ways to cope. In this practice, we are letting loose of all of that and moving directly to being with life as it is as the Buddha described in the Four Noble Truths. In one of the interviews, the group interviews this morning, someone asked uh, exactly what the word dukkha meant, that when uh, last night Deborah said that the first noble truth there is dukkha. Dukkha means 
uh, it's translated as suffering, but it's got a much larger related meaning. It has everything to do with the unsatisfactoriness of life, that it's always uh, in, in some way changing or it's, there's something unreliable about it, that it's stressful trying to manage in this realm, that, that there can be a kind of uh, tension even in the best moments, lots and lots of stress, lots and lots of, of uncertainty. So dukkha's got a very uh, wide ranging meaning and be sure and understand that the Buddha did not say that all of life is dukkha. He did not say that. He said that dukkha is an inevitable part of this realm, that it's interlaced with everything, that it's the nature of this realm, this stress, this uncertainty, that the, the physical suffering, the emotional suffering of the realm, it's just part of it. It's the nature of the realm. And so in our practice, we are learning how to develop a relationship to it. And the Buddha's fundamental teachings in regard to this were the Four Noble Truths. It's the one set of teachings that is said to include all the other teachings. I, I, I wrote a book based on what I learned from my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, uh, in which I titled the book Dancing with Life, because in the Four Noble Truths, there is the teaching of how to relate to this realm. How do you relate to life like it is and not have to have it be some other way? When you are unable to do that, you're forever reacting to life, reacting to whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether you want it or you don't want it. You're like a yo-yo on a string, you know. You're just being pulled or a puppet with two strings, pleasant and unpleasant. Not much relatedness to that, you know. Certainly not being a dance partner. But as we learn to stay present in the moment, no matter the conditions of the moment, we then develop this choice in how we meet the moment. And that is that we can respond to the moment. We get to respond from our deepest values to how this moment is. Sometimes that helps make make the moment that changes the conditions in some way because we don't add to the, to the confusion, the chaos, the, uh, all, all of the contraction of the moment. So sometimes the moment gets a lot better. Other times the moment stays just the way it is. But our sense of well-being starts to have ever-increasing uh, degrees of freedom from those conditions. So we have our preferences but we're okay. We, we have a, a, a sense of relatedness, a sense of meaning that's independent of those conditions. In this realm, not some future thing, but here and now, over and over again, the Buddha pointed to the happiness that's available here and now. Ajahn Chah captures this, uh, this uh, choice to show up in the moment in a way that is uh, so beautiful. Ajahn Chah was... Ajahn Sumedho's teacher, and he puts it like this. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. And that's our choice. The fact that you came here on this retreat on some level, consciously or unconsciously, you get this already. You intuitively know it. You, you, your body knows it. It's in this, this intuitive wisdom. And so as we practice we're actually learning how to dance with life. And that is a very empowering feeling. And in fact, that empowerment is one of the uh, great benefits of this tradition because all of our teachings are to empower you and your dance with life. So it's not about something coming back to us. It's all uh, in terms of you 
being empowered to better dance with your life. To uh, put this in a more humorous note, I'm a big fan of New Yorker cartoons, and I particularly like cartoons uh, where there's an analyst and someone on the couch, the analyst's couch. And so in this particular cartoon, Humpty Dumpty is lying on the analyst's couch, and he's wearing a little, little tie, and you can see his cracks, you know, where you know, they finally got Humpty Dumpty put back together. And the analyst is sitting there with this kind of uh, frustrated look on his face, and he says to Humpty Dumpty, eventually, I'd like to see you be able to put yourself back together. <laughs> and in one sense, that's what we're doing. We're coming home. We're putting ourselves back together into our innate nature. Mind you, this practice is not a practice whose, whose ultimate purpose is psychological health. Psychological health is something that develops as we practice. The ultimate purpose of this practice is liberation. Liberation of the mind from its reactivity, from its grasping, its clinging, and liberating the heart from its contraction and its fear. This is the purpose, the ultimate purpose of practice. It's a meandering path, and uh, the psychological health is certainly a part of what comes up, and many people are drawn to this for that reason, and many of the things that are taught here has now gone out in, into the therapeutic community. But this is a liberation practice. Our main tools that we use in this practice is concentration or samadhi or samatha, you'll hear it said in all three of those ways, which is a collecting and unifying the mind to varying degrees, vipassana or insight practice, the Brahma-viharas, the, the, today you were formally introduced to the loving-kindness, there's a loving-kindness practice, a compassion practice, uh, a sympathetic joy practice and an equanimity practice. These practices are not just supplemental, they are a key part of the whole gestalt of this coming together. And then there's renunciation. Being on retreat is one form of renunciation. The precepts in daily life are another form of renunciation. And then there's a, a dana or generosity. Generosity, we, uh, we are repeatedly guilty of not giving enough time to during the retreat. Generosity of attitude to those you encounter, uh, generosity of being willing to help whomever you encounter, uh, generosity of, of, of spirit in all kinds of ways of, of, of wishing well for others. All the Brahma Bahars come back into this this generosity feeling. And it's, it's not a small part. It's, it's one of the cornerstones of practice. So these are some of the main tools. Out of all of these tools, two things grow. Wisdom and compassion in that big sea of the uh, uh, kind of compassion. This, uh, this feeling of benignness towards all beings. So it's said that the the, the, the Dharma flies on two wings, the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. For those of you who are new, sometimes you'll hear us in the same talk, and you likely will hear me do it tonight, we will sometimes say Dharma and sometimes say Dhamma. It's just two different languages, same word. So mindfulness, mindfulness is the, the chief practice that we use for cultivating the conditions where insight will arise. So you can't practice insight. You can't sit down, oh, I'm going to go have three insights right now. Or I've got this problem. I'm going to sit down and have an insight about it. It doesn't work that way. There's not a, a direct link in that sense. But when you practice mindfulness, you create the optimal conditions for insight to arise. That makes sense to you. We can get defeated if we think we're supposed to be having insights, but we can all practice 
mindfulness to whatever degree is possible at this moment. I use the phrase over and over again, as best you are able. As best you are able, or as best I am able, you would say to yourself. That as best I am able is connecting to your intention. Intention is uh, the sort of axial point on the eightfold path, because that's when you really show up. It's intention. And so you're connecting to your intention to be mindful over and over again, no matter how many times you forget, get lost. And slowly but surely, as though uh, the, uh, the, the way water and ice and all carves out a canyon, so you carve out a space from the contraction and suffering. It is lawful. It is cause and effect. One can have faith in it but it requires patience and it requires diligence. So tonight, we're going to look at mindfulness and we're going to look at mindfulness in terms of what is mindfulness of the body? What is mindfulness of the body? So that's two parts to our inquiry this evening. Mindfulness, knowing what is mindfulness, and then knowing what is mindfulness of the body. So let's just take a moment be mindful of our body right now. You don't have to change your posture. Just be aware of your body right now. It's really doable, isn't it? Those of you who have to sit in meetings, meetings are so much uh, uh, more tolerable when you can stay mindful of the body. Those of you who have difficult relatives, when you can stay mindful of the body, it is so much more skillful in terms of how you, how you deal with the difficult relative. So right now, we're just being mindful of the body. As I go through this, this evening, I am speaking both to the newer students and to the more experienced students. Those of you who are more experienced, there's a degree of listening through at times. That's part of your showing up. For those of you who are more new students, there'll be phrases or words or concepts that don't mean anything to you yet. In each instance, how do you most effectively listen by letting go, by staying in the body. The primary sutta, sutta is teaching, that, in, that includes all the Buddha's instructions on how to practice mindfulness, is the Satipatthana Sutta. And we will be doing this sutta over two evenings. I'll read you the beginning of this sutta. Thus I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country at a town of the Kurus named Kama Sadama. There he addressed the monks. Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method for the realization of nibbana, nibbana meaning freedom, as I mentioned earlier, namely the four satipatthanas, the four satipatthanas. And these satipatthanas sometimes they're translated as foundations. You'll hear it described as the four foundations of mindfulness. Another way to think of it is that it is our whole life experience divided, the whole spectrum of our life experience, divided into four parts. And he could have divided it into other parts, but for this primary teaching, he divided it in this way, these four parts. And it, the emphasis is not on the, the parts of your experience, but how you're relating to each of those parts. So not getting confused, it's how you're relating. The first of those parts is the body, 
The second part is whether your moment's experience is pleasant or unpleasant. The third part of the, of the four foundations is the mind state that's present. And the fourth is the, the Dharma principles, the Dharma truths that are revealed in that. And you'll hear more about these last three later. But tonight, we're staying with mindfulness of the body. So to continue reading. What are the four? Here, monks, in regard to the body, a monk abides contemplating the body diligently, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. I'm sure that's how you are today, free from desires and discontent involving the world. This is why it's called a practice. <laughs> in regard to feelings, he abides contemplating feelings, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the mind, he abides contemplating the mind, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas, diligent, clear knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in the world. And so what the Buddha is saying is that we are willing to meet all of our experience without objecting to it. We're willing to meet it as it is, at least for a moment. Maybe we can't do that yet with certain of our experiences, but we're learning how. This is our goal. Our intent in this moment is to do this as best we're able with the goal of being able to do it more and more. So intention is here and now. Goal has a future to it. In our practice, we can get confused between our goals and our intention, and get all upset around our goals, get, get dissatisfied, get in self-judgment and all. The way out of that is to come back to our intent. And how do we come back to our intent? Is feeling our intent and throughout our whole body-mind. Well, what is intention? What is my intention right now? To really embody intention. So, in practicing mindfulness according to this opening of the sutta, and the sutta goes on and on, it starts with that we're diligent. There's a diligence to this. So there's a certain amount of effort involved. Not to be afraid of effort, but not to over-effort. There's a clearly known, that is, uh, it's called sampajana, this uh, clear seeing, being able to see it in its form. So each moment becomes a moment of practice, rather than a moment of our ego trying to get what it wants. So you're doing your yogi job, and you know, you're, the person you're having to do the job with is not doing their share, or the way they're doing their knife is scaring you, or whatever it is, you're having some sort of yogi mind moment around your yogi job. Oh, wow, look at my mind contracting here. That's the clear scene, as opposed to this, can you believe they're doing this? Should I speak to them or not? You know. That's not clear seeing. That's being caught in the content of the moment. And then this mindful is this knowing you know of it, that you are present and you know you're present. And then being free from desires and discontent is that there's a certain degree of concentration, which I will touch on uh, again. So right mindfulness is what we're learning here. Mindfulness has become a very popular technique in the world. Many people have come to a retreat and now they're applying it in education and they're applying it in business situations. People coming back from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan are being taken through a mindfulness training as part of uh, relieving trauma, all of which is wonderful. But to remember that this, this is, uh, mindfulness is, is uh, in Pali is sati, mindfulness, sati, S-A-T-I, we are teaching samasati, wise or right mindfulness. Mindfulness is part of the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. So we are not being mindful for worldly gain, although out of compassion we would act in the world, out of, uh, out of loving kindness we would act in the world, out of sympathetic joy we would act in the world. But our purpose is, is wise mindfulness, right mindfulness, mindfulness that leads us to not cause suffering to ourselves and others. I really care that people hear this, given the degree of 
uh, ways that mindfulness is now tossed about. So an example of not such wise mindfulness is four good Catholic boys who are, it could, they could be other, but I like to see them as, as Catholic. They are, uh, they've got these little hoods over their faces and all, and the, the leader is saying, and may you also, they're all praying, and the leader is saying, and may you also bless the bounty we're about to receive from that convenience store over there. My, uh, my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, talks about mindfulness in this way, that he says that a burglar breaking into your house instilling something while you're asleep in the house. They have incredible mindfulness, incredible mindfulness. And in fact, that degree of tension of that, uh, when you, uh, uh, I've worked in a prison for four years, so uh, teaching once a week mindfulness, there is a high from that kind of mindfulness. But that's not samasati, that's not wise mindfulness. It's not wise mindfulness. And so it's in, in that same sense, it's not, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? That's, that is not the intent here. So mindfulness itself, this word sati, you can think of it as awareness. That's one of the translations of the word. Uh, this satipatthana, the, the patana is upatana, meaning uh, placing near. Uh, being near, so upatana uh, to place near like this, to, in order to see, I place this lamp near my notes. So it is for you to see in your life, you place your mindfulness near your experience. Makes sense, doesn't it? Another translation of that upatana is presence. So a presence of awareness. As you develop mindfulness of the body, and mindfulness in general, you start to have a kind of embodied presence. So it's not just you're this good mind. You, uh, you know, you've, uh, you've all got good minds. You're, you're fast, smart, and all of this. But that's not the same thing as an embodied presence where you're fully occupying the space of your experience. And this is what you develop from the, the mindfulness practice. And that embodied presence can see clearly. It knows what will cause suffering and not cause suffering. It is able to see what would be desirable to have change and what's realistic to change. It's, it's very, very fruitful in this way. Attention is a um, mental skill that we use in our mindfulness. It's not quite the same thing as the mindfulness, but attention is like the spotlight that we use to be mindful. So we need to have that kind of spotlight. And you will hear me and others use that word attention and learning to direct attention and place attention where it's skillful. So that if, like if, you're, if you're having a hard time and you're sitting and, and this morning we, we had you sit, uh, Deborah took you through this thing of sitting with your pain. Ordinarily, we would, uh, we would be balancing that out. You sit with your pain for a while till it seems uh, enough that you feel, the, you feel the body fatiguing or you feel the nervous system fatiguing or getting frayed. And then you move to something that's neutral or something that's pleasant. That movement of the, of, of the mind from one thing to another is a placing attention. When you've placed attention, you can be mindful. You can be mindful. You're now shining the spotlight on, on your hip that was really hurting you. Well, enough of that. Now you place your attention on the breath and you become mindful. You become related to. You're standing near the breath. Makes sense? Need more nodding yes than that. There we go. <laughs> so mindfulness... Uh, and, is, uh, and the Buddha gave a number of different analogies to it. The one I actually like best is he says it's like the, the a rancher or the farmer taking care of his cattle after he has already taken in the crops for the year. So he's still got to watch his cattle to see that they don't wander off. But he doesn't have to worry about their getting into the fields and eating what they, he doesn't want them to eat. So there's not a tension to the mindfulness but rather it's a relaxed awareness. And when we're practicing, you can notice if you're getting tense 
in the way you're, you're showing up, in the way you're being mindful? Are you, are you grabbing at it? It's exhausting when you do that. Your body will start to hurt. Your mind will get very restless. So this relaxed attention that actually softens into the experience at hand rather than bangs against it. And that's another thing you can notice. Are you banging against your experience? Or you're trying to be with the breath and you've wandered off. And, oh, I'm, oh, I've wandered off. And you slam back into the breath. Today, Deborah uh, introduced the idea of when you get lost and you get awake. Oh, I will lost, oh I've been lost in fantasy. Now you're awake. Pause for a moment. Don't jump back to the breath. Just pause for a moment. Ah. <sighs> and then gently but firmly coming back to the breath. This is the lack of violence. Mindfulness is not a violent practice. It's not violent to the body, not violent to the mind. So this idea of the cow herder taking care of his cattle after the crops are in. It's also said it's like climbing an elevated platform where you, you, get a, you gain this larger perspective. That's another analogy the Buddha used. And also he's, he used it like a gatekeeper where you, you, the gatekeepers of a, of a walled city would, would be careful who they let in. So it is when you see that, that your mind is uh, just causing you suffering, you shift attention. You're, you're the gatekeeper. Mindfulness is the gatekeeper of what's skillful and unskillful as to what you're paying attention to. And the one that's also quite interesting is it's referred to as the elephant's neck because when the elephant is looking at something, it doesn't glance over like that. It turns fully to experience it. And so it was said that that's what the Buddha did, is that he would turn fully to whatever the experience was and give his full attention to it. And so uh, this... Uh, mindfulness is wide-ranging. You will hear us talk about bare attention, which is just barely noticing what's happening in the moment without any uh, focusing on investigation of the content, but just, oh, thinking, thinking, in, out, just this bare attention to investigation. So mindfulness can cover that whole spectrum. Mindfulness can also uh, be uh, looked at from the point of view of directed, directed attention, where you're really looking at something versus the time that you're practicing choiceless awareness. So in choiceless awareness, you're willing to be with whatever's arising. Sometimes that's skillful. Your mind's steady, your, 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 your body's comfortable enough, or you're so, uh, uh, you're so concentrated that it's okay to stay with whatever arises. Other times, no, you need to direct your attention. Or maybe you're directing your attention because you're wanting to investigate. So it's, it, it's, uh, there's a wide range of activity involved in mindfulness. And we can get into these questions of, am I doing the mindfulness right? Am I not doing it right? And, oh, well, in that group interview, they, this person said this, and that isn't what I've been doing. Let all that go. Let all that go. Come back into the body just now. So you find your own meaning of, mi of mindfulness. You find your own relationship to mindfulness by practicing it. You will develop all sorts of subtle understandings through time. One of the uh, basic understandings of mindfulness is that you are willing to start over. In one sense, you can say that primarily what you're learning to do on this retreat is to start over. It is an incredible skill to be able to start over in anything you're doing, to not be uh, uh, destroyed because you get knocked off course, to not quit because you've been frustrated a number of times. You're just willing to start over. One way that I like to think of starting over is that it's intention plus remembering. Intention to be present and remembering that I intend to be mindful. So you have to have an intention to be mindful, but you also have to remember. And as you've seen in these 48 hours, oftentimes we forget, right? We forget to be mindful. So we're learning. We're learning how to remember. We're developing the habit of remembering, and we're gaining clarity as to our intention to remember 
and we're, we're, we're gaining understanding that gives us much higher motivation of intention. Because we see it's really true that when I am mindful, I cause less suffering to myself and others. When we, the more we see that, the higher the motivation, and that higher motivation, the stronger the intention, and the more likely we will remember. And every moment that we start over, we're planting a, a seed for further remembering. It's, it's a self-reinforcing. It self, it's self-develops as we do it. In that sense, if we just show up and practice, then it will do it. But this intention is part of showing up. Ajahn Sumedho uh, uh, talks about this standing under. I, I describe in Dancing with Life um, his experience when he, when he was first starting out as a novice monk. He had a little small booklet on the Four Noble Truths in English. He had nothing else to read in terms of Buddhism. He, had, he went and lived in a Thai monastery where he did not speak a word of Thai and no one in that monastery spoke English. Can you imagine? He would go to the Dharma talks in the evening and sit there and of course not understand a word. And he would sit in the day, have all of this without any of the aids that we have. But he had that little booklet on the Four Noble Truths. And he said that, I just, uh, he writes in here in the introduction of, in some detail about it. But in practicing this way of mindfulness, he did learn to, un to stand under, to stand near all of the difficulties that arose in his mind. And you can imagine how difficult that would be in that kind of a situation. But it turned out to be such a liberating situation. He describes it as the most meaningful year of his life. And so we're here in the monastery. We have more favorable conditions, but we are standing near, standing under our experiences through mindfulness with compassion, with loving kindness. But we're standing under it. And just as the liberation came to him, so it will come to us according to our karma, according to the causes and conditions that we bring to it. Mindfulness of the body is a, a non-conceptual practice. It is, as Deborah said and as Pascal and Temple have said, it is, it is the felt sense of experience. The felt sense. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you can think of it also as dropped attention, dropped out of the coconut and into the actual experience. So oftentimes we have our view and opinion of an experience and we're, we're not really having the experience. We're having our view and, experience, our view and opinion of the experience. And oftentimes when people actually drop into their body, drop into their heart space, they find that all their views and opinions don't actually line up with the embodied experience. This is, can, uh, can be quite liberating. So if you will, hold out your left hand, place your right hand on top of your left hand. Now, don't overdo this, but I want you to push down on the experience. Push down on it. That would get tiring, wouldn't it? To be pushing down like that? Let loose of that for a moment. Many times that's what we're doing in a moment of meditation. We're pushing at experience. Left hand back up. Hand back on top. Now I, I resist with your left hand. But I want you to pull the left hand, but don't let it move with your right hand. Start pulling at experience. You're pulling at it. That too. Feel it in your shoulder. Feel it. In your, remember when that, that, that place in your back was hurting? Between the shoulder blades, there you are pulling at experience. And let that go. So we start to see that we are pushing and pulling at experience. Or, left hand out. Hold, hold, uh, hold your hand such that you're barely, barely touching the, the right hand to the palm of the left. 
barely touching. There's a little, sometimes it's not quite touching, then it comes back, then it goes away, then it comes back. Goes away, comes back. That's hovering. Release it. Tension there too, huh? So we're not meeting the experience as it is. We're either pushing and pulling at it or we're pulling back away from it as best we're able. With mindfulness, bring your hand back up, place the right hand on it, and just rest it on it. We're just being with the experience. Very big difference, huh? That's the felt sense. So release. So over time, we become more and more able to just rest in our experience. But how we get there is being aware of the pushing and pulling and the hovering, which is not fun. Who likes to be aware of all of that? You could be having a nice fantasy or be planning what you're going to do next week. That's much more entertaining to the ego mind. And problem solving, mmm, you know, that's delicious, right? <laughs> Pushing, pulling, who wants to do that? But the, the, this practice is moving away from the content of experience into the felt experience. So the content is your story about you're, you're sitting there and your knee is hurting and you have this idea, well, should I move or not move? Or, you know, this, if, if my knee didn't hurt, I would really have great concentration. That's all content. But what, we're, so we're not so interested in that. We're noticing that, oh, I'm pushing and pulling about this knee experience or I'm hovering away from it, right? And, and the felt sense of that is what uh, awakens, awakens us. It liberates us because we go, is this actually, is this uh, making this experience more effective, more pleasant, uh, uh, more well-being to it? Or is this pushing and pulling actually making it worse? If you stay with it long enough, you'll see that the pushing and pulling and the hovering makes it a lot worse. I mean, see for yourself. This is, again, part of this empowerment of this practice. You're not asked to believe anything. You're asked to experiment, to go see for yourself A.E. Pasico, it said, come see for yourself. Come see for yourself. So empowering. And, and so that's the felt sense. Now, um, bring your left hand up again and start to look at your left hand and make as many observations about it as you possibly can. So you might notice how smooth it is, or in my case, the wrinkles in it. You can, you can look at the front and the back. You can notice differences in color in the front and back. You can notice the length of the palm. You can notice the width of the palm, the width of the fingers, anything you want to notice. And you can think about all the ways that, that the hand's useful and think about, well, is it really true that developing this, this freedom of the thumb, is that really what allowed the brain to develop the way scientists have postulated? So you can have all sorts of ideas and views and opinions about your hand. That is a conceptual relationship to hand. It's very useful. Very useful. We certainly want to include that as part of our experience. But now close your eyes. Leave your hand up. Close your eyes. And start to move your fingers. Turn your palm around. You can bring your other hand up. Squeeze the, the right hand. Squeeze it. And now just soothingly touch your right forearm. And let the right hand come down. Now fan your face with your left hand. This is handness. And let that go and open your eyes. This is the kinesthetic experience. This is the direct experience. This is the embodied experience. This is awareness of the body in the body, which is the Buddha's teaching uh, and the and the Satipatthana Sutta of the body. And he teaches uh, six uh, different exercises of the body in this regard. He, he teaches uh, us to be aware of the breath, of postures, of activities, of moving the body around, of the parts of the body, of the elements of the body. And then he also has uh, this uh, meditation on a decaying corpse which is a very strong and powerful uh, 
meditation having to do with seeing the impermanence of this body. One way you can look at it is that it moves from the, the more gross level of the body to the more subtle levels. The two areas that we, well actually there's I guess in one way three, we, so we're where we do a lot with the, the, the body as breath. So body sensations, breath is just a body sensation and we're focusing on the body sensation. We're also then focusing on the posture, so we're aware of the body sitting, lying down, standing, and moving. Walking meditation is awareness of the body in the moving, but also in the standing. Because at, at, at each time you come to the end, there's standing for a moment, and then there's turning and moving again. So we're aware of the body in that way. And we, then uh, as the week goes on, you'll become more and more aware of the body in all your activities and in relation to intention. So eventually we'll ask you to start to notice your intention to pick up a cup. Or did you have an intention? Do you just suddenly having that cup in your hand and having a sip? So we'll work with some of that. We won't work too much with the body parts. So with the sweeping the other day of the body that Temple did, that was working with the body parts in a sense. But we do quite a bit of work at various points with the elements. The elements are the earth element, that's which is hard, firm, heavy. The fire element, that's which is warm or hot, can be, can be cool, that whole spectrum of the fire element, that the absence or the strong presence of fire element. The air element, that which is pressure vibrating, this, this initialness of movement is considered to be the air element. And then the water element, which in a way comes from all the other three, and that the water element has to do with form, like water can be ice or flowing water or steam. So the form it's in and the connectedness and the, the, the sense of a flowing of it. So we, uh, tomorrow morning in the meditation, we'll work with the earth element. And to uh, have a moment with that now, I want you to imagine your bones. The bones are a good way to tune into the earth element because the bones are pretty heavy, you know. And now I want you to, uh, wherever you're sitting, I want you to just reach under your right buttock and like you're going to lift yourself off the, the ground. So you encounter heaviness, right? There's a certain heaviness there. That's the earth element. The earth element has a propensity to relate to Mother Earth through gravity. We can utilize this in meditation. We can utilize all of the elements. We use the air element when we're following the breath. But we can use, we can use heat in our meditation. We can use uh, the water element. We can use any of the elements. But tomorrow morning we will be using the earth element. We don't have to do sitting meditation, sitting. We can do it standing, as many of you have done as, as you've worked with your sleepiness. We can also utilize it, uh, we, can, we can do it lying down. And a couple of you have back injuries and a lot of the time you do need to be lying down and you've told us about this medical condition and we're okay with that when that's necessary. The, the, you, we're not on this retreat, although some of you may be doing it anyway. You can synchronize, you can have the breath be part of your walking meditation. There's lots of different ways that we can work with this and there's a wide range of styles that various teachers use. There's also a fifth element and that's the element of space. And sometimes in the suttas, the Buddha will describe the four elements and sometimes he describes the five elements. Space is very useful to us because many times when we're sitting we get caught and we're so contracted that we actually have no space or something is the predominant experience of our of our uh, restlessness or our body pain uh, we've so uh, grabbed hold of it that it seems as though it has all the space so to invite spaciousness to discover that there is space 
This is one of the ways that we use directed attention. So you're there, you can't stand this, this, that knife blade right between the shoulder blade. It's just killing you, it's just killing you. And it's on and on, I gotta get up, I gotta get up. Why don't they ring the bell? Why don't they ring the bell? Ah, ah, I, I have choice here. I can be aware of my hands. Maybe only for three seconds. But for those three seconds, I can be aware of my hands through directing attention so that we're moving away from that that's contracting us. We have choice. This is a dance. You're learning to dance with your experience so that you move attention at times because it's skillful. You do not have to stay. Many times you won't remember you have choice. But over time, you'll remember it more often and sooner and for longer periods of time. And so you learn to... uh, Uh, find the middle way between the difficult and the middle way between the ultimate pleasant. Because one of the problems with fantasies is when the more concentrated you get, the more settled into the retreat, the more delicious fantasies get. And even planning can get more delicious. And so we can get caught over here. This this fantasy can take all the space. Wow, am I caught in fantasy? Back into it. Whoa, what happened to that retreat? That that sit. It was all fantasy. Well, that was easy. It's kind of pleasant. But then were you getting anywhere? And then you go, oh, no, there's a middle way. So fantasy, move away from fantasy. This, This sense that you can have choice. Over and over again, I say this to you, so this felt sense of choice, to know the movement of mind, to feel in this embodied way, I indeed can move the mind. Oh, there is space. There is space. So right now, just uh, notice that this room's got a lot of space in it. It's true, isn't it? How many times today have you noticed that? Now, notice your own body right now. So there's a lot of space in your body. Think of your brain. Think of all the space in your brain. There's lots of space, inner and outer. As we start to connect to it, we learn how to become more spacious in our practice. When we're not skillful, when we're not mindful, instead of spaciousness, we go into spaciness. Spaciness, not so helpful and yet we will all do it at times. All sensation is this felt experience. So, so the, 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 being awareness of the body is to be aware of sensations. Hearing is a sensation. For those of you who are struggling with breath, some of the time you could do hearing as your object of meditation. There's a sensation of registering in the inner ear. So you're hearing. You don't have to go, oh, where's the sensation? The felt sense of hearing is the hearing. So don't don't make it too complicated. It can get very subtle, but don't start out that way. You can just take hearing as your object of meditation if, 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 if breath is too hard. We are using the breath or hearing as our, uh, our anchor object of the way to collect and unify the mind so that we can start to explore these other experiences, including body sensations, and in the next few days, we will go to emotions and, uh, and uh, the pleasant and unpleasant of experience and so forth. So it's the sensations of what we're interested in, not the content, not our views and opinions about the sensations. One of the things that happens is that sensations represent energy. This body is an energy body. When we are paying attention to the body, Various things can arise as an experience. We might also not be paying attention to the body at all. And we have various experiences that arise that are uh, alternate energetic experiences that we're not accustomed to. In some meditation uh, uh, practices, there's a deliberate cultivation of those energetic states. We don't overly do that. There is in our samadhi practice there are certain energetic states that we do cultivate, but we, we're not primarily interested in that. We're interested in this liberation of the mind. So everything we cultivate is towards this liberation of mind and heart. You may, in this retreat, have various energetic experiences in your body. You will report them in your interviews, and we will work with them. You may have come to this retreat wanting to have a particular altered 
alternate experience with the body in some way. That's okay that you came with this. Is it doing you any good to hold on to it? Letting loose of expectations, as I said that first night. As we cultivate this middle way, one of the things that we run into is our own feelings of worthlessness. We can start to feel really worthless in practice. It's, um, it's really a, a very strong thing. We can fall into self-judgment, self-hatred, or, or, or just this uh, total despair around it. And this too is part of practice. It's not, it's not separate from practice. Hmm. Well, I don't have my little cartoon, but I remember it. The um, uh, there's the back to the analyst couch, uh, the the snow castle. You know those little cones, those little domes that you turn it upside down then you turn it the other way and it starts snowing. The snow castle is sitting on the analyst's couch and it's saying to the therapist, everybody tells me that I'm a precious collectible. Why do I feel like a piece of junk? (laughs) You are precious. This is a precious birth. You as you are are precious. It can take many hours of practice before you come to the direct experience of that. Your willingness to stay with in the middle way, not focusing on it all the time, but encountering at times and then moving away from it, encountering, moving away, that sense of worthlessness is how you get to the sense of worth. You don't go around it. The way out is the way through. It doesn't feel like that at the time, I know. But the way out is the way through. You don't get to dodge that. This practice is in part a purification practice. So when those feelings are coming up, they are being purified. There may be a lot to be purified there. Maybe a slow process, but they are being purified. And as you stick with it, you'll get little moments of seeing the truth of that for yourself, and that gives you the faith then to, to do it more very sympathetic to that. We teach the loving kindness, and I said the Brahma Viharas are a critical part of our practice because it's too hard to do this practice without the support of compassion and loving kindness. It's just too hard. So that's one of the ways that we can fall off to one side. The other way that we can fall off is our own grandiosity, where I've got to be a great meditator. I've got to be able to really concentrate it. I should always remember. And we, we, uh, we, we become our own worst enemy because we're not willing to accept our practice as being good enough. You know, it's that old Woody Allen line that, you know, I wouldn't belong to any club that would have me as a member. There's this sense of that, that uh, it's got to be grandiose. And so we keep pushing at it. We keep grasping after. This is another cartoon. The king is sitting there sort of for long, and he says to his manservant, I want to be feared as a tyrant, loved as a father, and revered as a god. But I also want them to think I'm funny. (laughs) Our own grandiosity can be that large. It really can. And that's okay. So we encounter our worthlessness and our sense of how great we are and something's in our way, but we're really supposed to be great. The modesty from the practice, the, the humility of the practice, comes from encountering both of these, to meet them with compassion, with loving kindness, and mindfulness. Mindfulness does bring us along this path of liberation. And as we get there, we gain the skill uh, to what Ajahn Chah called everyday dharma. He says it like this. We focus on the here and now dharma. This is where we can let go of things and resolve our difficulties. We look at the present and see continuous arising and ceasing. 
When the mind starts to realize that all things without exception are by their very nature uncertain, the problems of grasping and attachment start to decrease and wither away. I keep saying this to people, but they don't take it to heart. So part of our tradition is this everyday dharma. We're not just going for this big moment, you know, and some distant thing. But every day on this retreat, there's thousands of, of opportunities for everyday dharma. You can liberate yourself in this moment walking down to the dining hall as you're brushing your teeth, as you're setting your alarm clock. All of these moments. And that is what you will bring back so much into your life. These habits of everyday dharma, of liberating this little moment now. There's also this release of the heart that does occur as we get grounded, as we become still, as we start to trust, we feel the support of sangha, and our heart does open. And as the heart opens, a lot changes, a lot changes. So I'll end with this poem. It's called The Lesson. And it was, uh, uh, it's by Mark Nepo. When young, it was the first fall from love. It broke me open the way lightning splits a tree. Then, years later, cancer broke me further. This time, it broke me wider, the way a flood carves the banks of a narrow stream. Then, having to leave a 20-year marriage, this broke me the way wind shatters glass. Then, in Africa, it was the anonymous face of a schoolboy beginning his life. This broke me yet again, but this was like hot water melting soap. Each time I tried to close what had been opened. It was a reflex, natural enough. But the lesson was, of course, the other way in never closing again. You will have moments where your heart has freedom and you will forget and close again. Through the mindfulness, you start over. You don't cling to that past memory of, my heart was open, I want it to be like that. What is my intention? My intention is to liberate the mind in this moment as best I am able, to liberate the heart in this moment as best I am able. And what am I doing that with? Sleepiness, restlessness, worry. Whatever is the experience, no matter how modest, when we are present with that experience, it is a gateway. A gateway to this embodied presence in the moments of our lives. Let us sit together. This is from Ajahn Mun, who was one of the great meditation teachers of the last century. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. The wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered.
Well, thank you very much for your kind attention. It's time for walking meditation, and we'll be back in here at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.